This is Cosmic Coffee Time, the place where we take a look at what's happening somewhere in the universe in about the time it takes to have a coffee. It's cosmology in a cup. So grab a coffee and see where in the universe we're going this time. I'm Andrew Prestige, and you can get all episodes of Cosmic Coffee Time wherever you get your podcasts. This is a very special episode of Cosmic Coffee Time. We talk with David W. Brown. He's the author of The Mission. It's a cracking story of Europa Clipper, NASA's mission to Europa, the icy ocean moon of Jupiter. David has been published in the New York Times, The New Yorker, and Scientific American, and he joined me from New Orleans. David W. Brown is the author of the new book, The Mission. The Mission is NASA's Europa Clipper, a robotic mission to Jupiter's moon Europa. It sounds like an incredibly bold project. David, congratulations on the book, and thanks for joining us on Cosmic Coffee Time. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to reading the whole book, Um, but David, Europa Clipper is scheduled for launch 2025, and I believe the spacecraft's already being built. What can we expect to see from the mission when it gets underway? Europa Clipper is is a habitability mission, and what it's going to do is fly to the Jupiter system. It's going to circle Jupiter 40 times or so on its prime mission, and each time it circles Jupiter, it's going to encounter Europa, which is Jupiter's icy ocean moon. It'll encounter Europa in multiple configurations, so it'll just fly by, scan a stripe of it, and then fly out. And it'll do that repeatedly. And the reason it needs to do it like that rather than just orbit Europa directly is because uh, Europa exists in what's called the Jovian radiation belt, um, which this is this punishing belt of radiation that, that surrounds the largest planet in the solar system. Um, Europa itself is about the size of our moon, but beneath that ice shell, there's three times more liquid salt water than on the planet Earth. So if there's life anywhere else in the solar system, it's in that water. And your book covers the journey to getting approval to go to Europa, but the project took an unusually long time to get the green light. Were there other projects competing for NASA's attention at the time? Yes. Um, If you're NASA, you really don't have a lot of money. Relative to the rest of the federal budget, NASA gets one half of 1% of the budget. And of that, only a, a tiny quarter of it goes toward this sort of space exploration. So NASA has to balance its different exploration priorities. Um, And it does a reasonably good job. Something like Europa, because of that crippling environment that it lives in, um, it's a unique challenge in the solar system. And um, if you're NASA, you don't have a lot of money, you can go somewhere when money comes along. Do you you risk going to a place this difficult? Or do you go somewhere, for example, that might one day have astronauts? So generally speaking, NASA would err on the side of going to Mars. And there are so many people involved in the project, so many different career backgrounds. And you've mentioned those in the subtitle to your book, which is almost like a chapter in itself. Uh, With all of those characters and personalities, how did their priorities align? Were they all kicking in the same direction or did that bring its own challenges? One of the things that when I was writing the book that struck me as most interesting is that 
for the most part, none of these people set out to be Europa explorers or Europa scholars. Um, they came from different areas of planetary science, and in some cases, they came from different careers entirely. Europa is one of those compelling targets of exploration that once somebody meets it, they tend to fall in love with it, and it tends to take control of people's lives. So in the case of the book, uh, the mission, um, one of my challenges as a storyteller was finding, you know, getting people to tell me where they came from, how they came to this this, this story, or how they came to this mission. Um, and they do, they came from all walks of life. It's a, it's a wonderful, diverse background. The thing that's interesting about Europa, I think, or the reason it's so compelling is because of the remarkable implications of what life would, what the discovery of life on another world would be. Um, all life on earth comes from a single ancestor hundreds of millions of years ago. Um, so everything we've ever encountered that's living is in some way related to us, and that's how we relate to everything else. Life on Europa would have had its own genesis. It would have had its own common origin, which means it's it's life as we know it to the extent that it exists in salt water, but it's life entirely unrelated to us. What would that mean for biology or religion even or philosophy? Um, when you have those sorts of stakes, you tend to attract an interesting group. And you've mentioned that Europa is a, a moon of Jupiter. And I think one of the most interesting things about looking at Jupiter through a small telescope is the four Galilean moons, Io, Europa that we're talking about, Ganymede and Callisto, all in a perfect line. But with a small telescope, you can't tell which moon is which by their appearance. They all look like identical white points of light. And I can understand how people would have thought they were all really similar of course, now we know that they're not similar at all. What makes Europa unique? Well, so if you look at each of the moons in turn, you've got Io, which is the closest to Jupiter, and, and that's the most volcanically active body in the solar system. That planet or that moon is literally turning itself inside out. It's just hemorrhaging its entrails. Then you get to Europa, which um, has a thick layer of ice with a subsurface ocean, and then beneath that subsurface ocean is rock. So water is touching rock, which is why you get interesting chemistry. Beyond that, you get Ganymede, which has more ice yet, and then Callisto, which has the most ice of all. The reason why Europa has an ocean is specifically uh, because of which which you're describing. Um, Jupiter, the, the mass of gravity of Jupiter is always sort of at work on these moons. Um, and the moons themselves have a nice four, two, one resonance. Every one time, one moon orbits, another moon orbits twice, and another one orbits four times. In practice, what's the, what this means is the moons are constantly squeezing each other. And if you take a tennis ball, say, and you start to squeeze it, it'll get warm on the inside. Well, what happened, and this is why you have an ocean on Europa, at, at Io, that squeezing motion eventually eventually got rid of all the ice and all the water there. So all that's left now is rock and volcanoes. When you got to Europa, you have that heating on the inside, the ice at the bottom melted. And that's why ice is touching um, uh, or water is touching rock. When you get to Ganymede though, because it has so much more water, all that squeezing, that flexing, it's melting the ice on the inside. So you have water touching ice. It's sort of an ice sandwich. The downside of that is without water touching rock, you don't get the chemistry you need for life. And then Callisto is more or less uh, the, 
the, the more uh, gentle of the bunch. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, the, those moons are extraordinary and the, the, it's like George Lucas themed each one of them separately. David W. Brown's talking with us about Europa and his new book, The Mission. The space launch landscapes changed in recent times with commercial operators like SpaceX, bringing down the, the cost of launching payloads into space. And I heard somewhere that now it costs less to go into space than to make a movie about going into space. Has that opened up more opportunities for projects like Clipper? That is absolutely the greatest enabler for space exploration um, since, anything, since anything we've seen since the Apollo program. Um, certainly, um, for your, in the case of Europa Clipper, it's looking like it's going to launch on a, a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket. Um, it's going to take what's called a mega trajectory. So it'll launch from Earth. It'll encounter Mars. That's the M in mega. It'll come back and have another Earth gravity assist, and then it'll fling out to Jupiter. The reason it does that is because each time it, it passes a planet, it grabs a little bit of that gravity and thus speeds up. So it gets a little faster at Mars, it gets a lot faster at Earth, and then basically it's free propulsion from Isaac Newton, and it gets flung out to uh, it gets flung out to the Jupiter system. Um, but because we are able to, um, because the cost of access to space has plummeted so much, I mean it's an order of magnitude or greater less than it used to be. Um, we're seeing more and more uh, missions have the opportunity to launch. NASA has more money available to build these missions. These missions themselves can either be heavier or they can be assembled in orbit. Um, likewise, for the, um, for the human space uh, program at NASA, they could launch on two Falcon Heavies and then uh, get assembled in orbit, much as the International Space Station was built. Um, we're going to see the same thing with communication satellites. I know Elon Musk is building Starlink to sort of bring internet to the world. Um, I, the cool thing is the most exciting things that are going to be developed in space that are going to affect us directly on Earth, they haven't even been thought of yet. We're, just, we're in the nascency of a, of a new age, and, and I can't wait to see what happens next. And you briefly mentioned Apollo, and thinking back to that time and comparing it with what's being done now, do you think there is or do you think there was a golden era of space exploration? I absolutely do think there was an, a golden age of space exploration, and we are living in it right now. Um, the Apollo program, we, we, we look back collectively and seem to remember that everyone supported it because it's such a self-evidently uh, astonishing and remarkable achievement. But even at the time when Neil Armstrong was walking on the moon, uh, uh, the majority of people were against the program. Only in retrospect do we have such fond feelings for it. When we look at what is what we are capable of right now in space exploration. This is something I write a lot about in the mission. We're sending a, we're sending a robot to look for habitability of an ice moon orbiting Jupiter. We're sending right now, in fact, next week, um, a helicopter and a one-ton nuclear-powered car are both going to land on Mars. Um, in the, in the years ahead, NASA is going to be sending a quadcopter, sort of like one of those drones that you would fly in the park. We're sending one of those to Titan, which is uh, Saturn's moon and the only moon in the solar system with a significant atmosphere. We're seeing the remar some remarkable kinds of uh, space exploration that not even Jules Verne would have dreamed up. And uh, that's not science fiction. That's, that's science fact. Um, 
the years and month, the months and years ahead are going to uh, change our notions of what's possible in space. And uh, I think all of humankind is going to benefit from it. David W. Brown is the author of The Mission. And just one final question for you, David. If we do find evidence of life on Europa, and let's say it's conclusive, what do we do with that information? What do we do next? That's a really good question. As a scientifically, um, the entire field of astrobiology would light up. Um, again, this is this would be a creature that's unrelated to anything on Earth. Um, in terms of, um, you know, if I go to a restaurant and I order fish and they bring it out, when I eat that fish, on some level, I've earned the right to eat that fish because of something my ancestors did you know, 100,000 or a million years ago, some hominid long ago, put the human creature where it is on the food chain. Um, but let's say there's a fish on Europa. That life is unrelated to us. It has no place on the food chain. How would we even relate to that? I'm not saying we would go eat it, but what I am saying is we are encountering a creature that has no connection to us. Do you even consider that an animal? I mean, what... what how do you interface with such a thing? These are questions that philosophers are going to have to answer. Uh, what would life totally unrelated to that of Earth be like? Um, it'll be life as we know it, but to a certain extent, it won't. Um, so again, biology is going to have to answer these questions as well. The, the, the short version is we don't have any concept really. We think we know what it'd be like to meet an alien creature, but in reality, we don't. And uh, but we better find out, or, or we're going to find out soon, so we better figure things out. Our guest today was David W. Brown. His new book is The Mission. We'll have some links in the show notes to make sure you can find it. It sounds like a cracking read. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and all the best with The Mission. Thank you very much for having me today. The Mission is published through Custom House, and David's website is davidwbrown.com. Check out the links in the show notes. Thanks for joining me. I'm Andrew Prestige, and I'll see you again soon for another Cosmic Coffee Time.